I'm John Caldera, president of Independence Institute. Philip Howard is the chair of Common Good, a best-selling author and advisor for leaders in both major parties. In his latest book, Not Accountable, he argues public sector unions aren't just bad for the country, they're unconstitutional. This is the audio version of our television program, Devil's Advocate. You can watch the show by going to youtube.com and searching for our channel, IITV, which stands for Independence Institute TV, or just go to thinkfreedom.org. I hope you enjoy this discussion. While private union membership seems to keep declining all over the country, it seems like public sector unions, at least here in Colorado, are starting to grow back up. Well, Philip Howard seems to know a lot about that. You might remember him from the book, The Death of Common Sense. Now, not accountable. Rethinking the constitutionality about public, uh, public sector unions. Philip, thanks for being here with us. I really appreciate it. Nice to be with you, John. All right. I want to talk to you kind of broadly first. Is there an ethical issue with public sector unions? I'm thinking particularly about those core governmental functions of government. Police, fire, and I want to get into teachers as well. But the idea that there are governmental unions means there could be governmental strikes. And on the public side, at least there's always a market mechanism. That is, you know, if the airline goes on strike, well, it's a private airline. If you want to go to the other airline, you can. If the baggers union for the grocery store goes on strike, you can go to the other grocery store. And there's some sort of market ne- mechanism that keeps them in check. With a government, you really can't go to the other government There's no other way to do this. And if the police go on strike, you can't call the other cops. When your house is burning down, you can't call the other police. And when your kid is being educated, you only have one shot to educate your kid. And if the teacher's on strike, you miss the one opportunity to have your kid educated. Is there a morality issue? Is there an ethical issue in general with public sector unions? Absolutely. It's one of the reasons FDR, who is a firm supporter of private unions, was an equally firm opponent of public unions. He said that you can't transfer collective bargaining to the public sector. It's just, it's a, it's a conflict of interest. So, you know, the public employees swear a duty of loyalty to serve the public. And what public unions have done is they've amassed the power of public employees. There are over 22 million public employees in this country at all levels against the reform of government and in many ways against the operations of government. So that's what Not Accountable is about. It explains how if if you look at how public unions have grown really only in the last 50 years, which is when collective bargaining was authorized, They've grown in ways that do nothing but hurt the public. Stop there for a second. I remember the history books. I remember the stories of child labor and factory towns and company towns. And the more you work, 
the more you got in debt to the company, and that there was exploitation of workers. And the story was that, thank God for unions to come in and protect workers from the coal mines and the, and the, uh, the guys who owned all these companies who were exploiting these, these workers. And these private sector unions were able to, were able to help, um, help families, help workers have a better life. And it seems, though, and tell me if I'm wrong, at least in the, in the private sector, there was a time when private sector unions really helped have a balance against exploitative business practices. Am I wrong on that? On the, on the private sector? Completely correct. The origin story of private sector unions was corporate abuse, child labor, uh, you know, um, killing people in coal mines and railroads and such. I mean, it was really outrageous. And then uh, um, so public unions grew. They became very powerful. But over time, uh, regulation sort of supplanted safety regulation, for example, what the unions were doing. And the unions overplayed their hand in the 60s and 70s, driving jobs uh, to overseas manufacturers, for example, in the car industry or in the the steel industry. So that at this point, only 6% of the private workforce is is unionized. And um, uh, in part because it's not really as much as needed as it was over 100 years ago when all these abuses took place. There were no such abuses in the public sector. You know, we had civil service systems. We didn't have people being fired and abused and such. The- what, what, do, what do you mean? Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me, let me challenge you on that. What do you mean there weren't abuses in the public system? You know, we had cops. Cops get shot at. We have firefighters. Firefighters have to run into burning buildings. You know, we've got people who have to work long hours and doing dangerous jobs in the in the uh, uh, public sector as well. So, aren't those exploitative jobs? Uh, no, those are in the nature of the jobs. And so, uh, long before there were public unions, the uh, public safety officers, such as police, were able to. They had a special deal. They were able to retire earlier, often after 20 or 25 years, and with a nice pension and go on to, you know, have other careers following their, their, their stint in dangerous public service. And we, my view is that we ought to honor people who do public service, especially uh, the public safety officers. But, um, but, but there wasn't the kind of management abuse that led to the private sector unions. Let's bring it uh, to, to today. Um, one of the things that is hard for us to get across from a financial side is just how lucrative it is to work on the government side. And what I mean by that is how to compare retirement plans especially. So my older brother's retired and he worked for, he worked for the state for, uh, for a long time. And he's got, he's, he's retired and he's not that much older than I am. So I love to tease him about it. And uh, I mean, good for him, but he has a public pension and it is adjusted for, for inflation. 
He gets to retire much earlier than anyone on Social Security. And it makes me wonder about, about the equity of this. So we hear about, let's pick on teachers for just a second. Teachers are overworked, underpaid, overworked, underpaid, undervalued, underpaid, overworked, undervalued, underpaid. It, it has been the same story since forever. I've, I've heard it all my life. We did a study once several years back, and we said, well, wait a second. If you were to take their pay and add in the benefits they have for retirement, but if you were to bring that forward as part of their, their pay up front, how much more would you have to pay them to, to put it into the pay up front, as if you were going to give them in a, in a 401k, to guarantee them the same pension? And it came out to be about 29% more. So if you were going to buy a product that was going to guarantee them the same payout, you'd have to pay another 29%. Uh, maybe it was 27%. It was a few years back. But it was a huge amount of money uh, in, in that. And we never seemed to put that into the calculations. The other part that concerns me is that their pensions depend on other people in the private sector continuing to work. So there's this, this idea that a lot of people will be paid so that they can retire early, but it depends on a lot of people in the private sector continuing to work in order to keep that, that pay. It doesn't quite seem equitable. Am I off on this? Um, no, you're not off. Uh, uh, but, but with all due respect, I think you're missing the main problem. So, um, you know, one can argue about what the fair compensation is for public employees. I would argue that uh, that good teachers ought, ought to get paid more. I agree. Um, you know, they're you know they're worth a lot of money. The the, the pension abuses that um, the sort of back end loading of pensions that you mentioned. It, it, their biggest problem is that they weren't transparent, and that the public officials who gave it to them. And we can go into this in the kind of collusive bargaining that goes on where a public official gets campaign support from the unions and then has to figure out a way to pay them off afterwards. And the easiest way to do that is by back in back in loading the benefits. So they come due long after that official has left office. And so you get these these uh, distorted uh, public pensions that, that, as you mentioned, are dramatically richer than than comparable, than, than comparable private pensions. So, so there is an abuse there. And then the public officials also don't reserve enough money for these defined benefit plans that don't actually go up and down with the actual performance of the, of the savings, right? They, they, the employees get the money no matter what, plus the cost of living, whereas with a 401k, you get investing, and if the stock market goes down, you get a little less. But the biggest cost of this, by far, is the unmanageability of government. Is the fact that you can't actually manage the Denver school system. I mean, we I did some studies of the Denver school system 10 or 15 years ago uh, with Jerry Workout and some others who had been, you know, the superintendent of schools there. And... Um, uh, the, the bureaucratic conditions and the union conditions were such that you can never get rid of a bad teacher. 
You can't even discipline a student. Um, you can't do anything serious to manage the school. So if you've got a lousy school, you don't have a chance of fixing it because the person supposedly in charge, the principal, and whoever's above them, and whoever's above them, the superintendent school, don't have the authority to do it. So what's the cost of that? The cost of not being able to manage government operations, schools, police forces, you name it, pick a number, half, two-thirds of the, of the compensation cost, it's wasted. It's like we're burning money because we have all these people who work for the government who can't be managed. When you say they can't be managed, let me see if I'm, I'm following you, and this might be the way I'd put it, is that in every private sector operation, when I hear the word professional, um, and I keep hearing that teachers are professionals, well, professionals are compensated by how well they do. Teachers, for instance, are not compensated by how well they do. They have a salary schedule. And you can see it in their union contract, and they're compensated usually by two factors and two factors only. How many years they've been employed by the district and how many teaching certificates or uh, degrees they, they've uh, earned. So if they've, if they've, the longer they've been in the, you're right, it has nothing to do with how well they teach. So if they go to a lot of courses, take a, get a lot of cer certificates or a lot of degrees, they get more, which is why there are so many doctors in, in education. Everybody's a doctor. Nobody can remove your appendix, but everybody's a doctor. And they've been in the system long, and that bumps them up the salary schedule. But that doesn't say if they can teach well or not. But every other system in the private sector has people who evaluate your actual productivity. There's a reason why star athletes get paid well, why great football players get paid a lot and bad football players get cut. There's a reason why salesmen get bonuses and poor salesmen get fired. Bad teachers never get fired. And more, more disappointingly, great teachers don't get raises as, as they should. It's got to be incredibly de demotivational. Oh, yeah. So, you know, accountability, first of all, democracy is a process of accountability. That's basically all it is. The voters elect an official, and if they think the official did a lousy job, they elect someone else in the next election. It's a process of accountability. For that to work, the, the, the elected executive, the mayor, the governor, have to have the authority down the chain of command to hold other people accountable, as you say, who's good, who's not. So most people think of accountability in terms of just getting rid of the people who are lousy, and that is important. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Accountability is like the stem cell of any healthy organization. If everyone knows that performance doesn't matter, it's like letting the air out of a balloon. You have a horrible public culture. It's very hard to rebuild a culture when you go to work saying, why should I give the, why should I go the extra mile? Why should I work hard? Why should I kill myself at night when the person next door isn't doing it? When the person, you know, when you have no confidence in people. So accountability is essential to the pride and energy of an organization. And so by taking away accountability, we're talking about with teachers and cops, 0.001 or 0.002 of the total universe get terminated 
for, for accountability every year. Like in California, I think it's two or three teachers out of 300,000 a year. I mean, it's like- Which is, which is why teachers, uh, what do they call it? They call it the, the dance of the lemmings, where they, they try to transfer teachers to other districts, or in some places, like in New York City, the really awful teachers, they will transfer to a, a building where they don't teach, but they can't even fire them. It's cheaper just to pay them not to teach kids because the idea of firing them is too expensive. Well, they can't do it. I mean, last year in New York, a, uh, a, a principal of a school was discovered to have falsified the test results over a period of years to make himself look good. They couldn't fire him. And so they finally made a deal. The guy made $275,000 a year. <laughs> to pay him for another six or seven years, uh, but take him off the job. I mean, I mean, you can't make it up. It's like you get paid. So in, any, in any private sector job, he would be fired. And basically he's stealing. He, he would be brought up on charges. But in the, in the public sector, he, he gets paid off and, and uh, uh, gets an early retirement. So you said, you said. But, right, but, but let me just make one point. Yeah. Accountability is really critical, critical. And in, in, in modern American government, at every level, there's basically zero accountability. And that's because of collective bargaining agreements and procedures that are so onerous that it takes years, and in some cases, millions of dollars, even to try to get rid of somebody, and that usually fails. But that's not the only thing that the unions have done. They have multi-hundred-page collective bargaining agreements that dictate that a teacher only has to spend, for example, 40 minutes a month with, with the principal. There's no extra training, even if you need it. That you can't actually go and observe the teacher, except under very limited circumstances with advance notice. Um, something similar with cops. I mean, it's just so the man, all the basic management tools, you can't reassign somebody. Um, all the basic management tools are gone. And then we wonder why the public sector is so lackluster. What people haven't really put their arms around is the fact it isn't just a few bad people. It's a system that is literally burning money and, and providing and, and destroying the lives, in the case of schools, destroying the lives of, of millions of kids by putting them, especially inner city schools, in schools that can't possibly work. You say it's, it's, yeah, you say it's burning money. It's also destroying the lives of young people because they're losing an education and they only have one shot. So it's destroying lives. And also let's say when it comes to police departments, we can argue it's costing lives. And we're seeing some of the results of, 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 of cops who are not doing the jobs they should be doing, although overwhelmingly, I think we've got spectacular police officers. Let me ask you what, this question. You said that democracy is an exercise in accountability. Well, school boards are the ones who are supposed to stand up for the kids' education. But school boards are elected, but school boards are usually elected by different special interests, including the unions. And so unions are the ones that are most involved in the election of the school boards. Or, so you've got this, mind you, this happens in, in government 
on all sectors, that special interests are the ones that pour in the money and, and, and work on those issues. You know, uh, there's a very different, big difference between public union special interests and every other special interest. Every other special interest goes to the state house or goes to con- goes to Congress and they beg and plead for some special tax break and they get it or they don't. And that takes some little chunk out of the fisc. Public unions are different in two ways. First of all, what they bargain for is for control of the entire operating machinery of government. They're just not getting a favor here or there. They're in control of how the schools work and how the police work and how agencies work. They're, they've bargained away the right of voters to elect people to actually be in charge. So, so on a factor of, you know, they're, they're a thousand and every other special interest is a one, two or a three. I mean, it's so it's completely different in kind what the influence is, number one. Number two, public employees have an ethical duty to serve the public. Executive officers and other top officers at every level of government have to swear an oath of loyalty to the Constitution and such. And not only do they have officials over a barrel, because you said at the beginning that government can't move out of town. <laughs> you know, they can't if, if the unions demand too much. But the unions, because they're so big, because government is so big, have become by far the largest political interest group in getting people elected. So they spend millions of dollars often to support or indeed oppose a candidate that tries to reform them. And when the person they elect is is in office, they go to the bargaining table. They don't sit on the other side of the table. They sit at the same side of the table. (laughs) So what do you, you know, what are you going to give me now? Okay, let me let me let me ask you this. And by the way, uh, take the it's opportunity. It's a payoff. We're it's talking a payoff. about a payoff. Tell you what, take this opportunity to fix your screen a little bit. You're starting to starting to look uh, uh, fogged like uh, uh, Marilyn Monroe in a in a romance scene. But you're looking good. There you go. So, all right. I think you laid out the problem. Help me with a solution here. You know, we try to say that that parents should be should have control and the money should go through parents instead of through the government. That's one system. But the teachers union is one union. There's lots of public sector unions. There's got to be a better way. So let me ask you the unreal question. If you had, if you had a magic wand, what would you do to fix it? Well, uh, the significance of not accountable is that I'm saying we don't have to rely on a political solution that um, that by taking control of the operating machinery of government, the public unions should be unconstitutional. There's a basic principle of constitutional governments that a legislature and a, an elected official cannot cede governing authority to any other private group. And there's actually a very specific provision in um, the Constitution called the Guarantee Clause in Article 4. It says, the United States shall guarantee to every state a Republican form of government. And what James Madison said that that meant is that the voters have to retain the power to elect someone who has the power to run government, that that person cannot give that power to an aristocracy or to any favored class. 
So what has happened over the last 50 years is that legislatures and, and elected executives, in exchange for political support, have given away the authority of governing to the unions. They can't hold anybody accountable. They can't manage it sensibly in, in, in any way. And I'm arguing that that's unconstitutional so that we can bring a lawsuit and do, and end the stranglehold that public unions have over the governments of our society. So that's one solution. I mean, there are smaller solutions like school choice that I'm in favor of. I think charter schools have done a great job by and large. Well, l- l- let me challenge you because I'm uh, the idea that um, a school board elected officials uh, represent the voters and as representatives of the voters in this Republican form of government can say, you know, we delegate authority to our superintendent or if it's a city council to the uh, city manager. Uh, we have we have uh, property and we're having a contract with this company to mow the lawn of our of our uh, of our uh grass fields in our, our football fields or whatever it is. And we're, we're, we've got a contract with a bunch of teachers and we've just decided this is the most efficient way to, uh, to do that. And as a Republican form of government, we were elected to make a choice of how best to administer this school district. And in our wisdom, we have decided this is the best way to do this. This is a way that works the best for the children. We're not doing this for ourselves. We're doing this because we love the children. And I've been listening to, to school unions, and I guarantee you, every time I do, it's not about them. It's about the children. And therefore, the, the school board has the authority to do so. Right. They don't. The voters of Illinois just passed a constitutional referendum giving all this power to the union. And it's clearly unconstitutional. Even the voters can't take away the power of officials. So under the Constitution, it's fine to have, enter a contract with a grass mowing company. That's not a governing function to mow the grass. And they were, you know, respond up the line to the, to the public officials. But the school board cannot give away its authority to decide who's a good teacher and who's not and blah, blah, blah to the public union. They can't give it away. Uh, it, it all comes from John Locke's second treatise. So you can't delegate essential governing authority. An essential aspect of governing authority, one would argue the essential aspect of governing authority is, is the power to decide who is doing a good job when operating government and who isn't. They've given that away to the union. They can't do it. I can see some egghead in a fluorescent lit uh, union office going, oh, I see what Howard is doing now. But you know what he's really doing? He's saying those evil charter schools that parents have gone, uh, gone to, you know what they do? Sometimes they contract out with companies to provide educational services. Maybe they uh, contract out with K-12 or some other private company that provide curriculum and online teaching. And what are they doing? Well, they're just contracting out that service just like we have a contract with a union. 
It's just as evil and just as wrong. And, you know, John Locke's second treatise says you cannot do that. And so we're using that to get rid of all that school choice and all those public charter schools. Well, educating is actually not governing. It's the overseeing of education that's governing. So government couldn't simply give to a charter school, by the way, which they don't, the power to educate anyone. The people who go to charter schools are exercising choice that they want to go to a charter school. Um, and so, so governing, issuing, letting someone have a contract that people choose to do, provide that service to another one, is not giving away governing authority. And by the way, government retains the powers to decide whether or not a charter school is adequate and up to the job. The problem with public schools is that they've given away the ability to manage the public schools or to do anything about them. If the courts don't take your prescription, and I'm unaware of any court case um, that's pending that would do that or heard of any, if, if you know of any, I, uh, has my, such a suit? My book's been out one week. Okay. Nobody's, <laughs> nobody's ever made this argument before. Uh, I've had 10 reviews, including from legal scholars, uh, which are all glowing. Because okay. I'm saying that the emperor has no clothes. So the factual indictment, I have a five-point indictment in the book about how public unions have basically preempted democratic governance. So we elect people who don't have authority. Somebody can disagree with that if they want to. But I think the facts are pretty overwhelming. So I'm talking with law firms and public interest legal uh, foundations right now about about doing doing the lawsuit. But the, this is a you know everyone sort of accepted public unions as a state of nature for the reasons you stated earlier. They well other people have unions. Why can't we have unions? Well, they're very different. How they get to their powers of you, you know, there's a conflict of interest with the public. <laughs> there are lots of differences, but people just hadn't thought about it in 50 years. It is funny, just human nature, that when you're born and something exists, even if it's wrong, you just accept it as part of nature. Uh, you know, growing up, I thought that the Soviet Union was something that was going to be there for the rest of my life and you know our kids and grandkids and grandkids would be in a constant state of, of a cold war you, you just think that's the way it's going to go so the idea that public sector unions would always be around is one of those things you, you just constantly think is going to be there it is amazing that the unions are there to protect the employees not to protect the people who they served. That's the fundamental difference. And it's fine if the union are a bunch of carpenters who are out there um, working on houses. It's fine if they're mechanics working on um, uh, uh, working working on the, the the unions for making cars. Because sooner or later, if they take too much. Detroit goes out of business, Michigan goes out of business, and people take their business to Tennessee or to Japan or now Korea, and the market takes care of that. This doesn't happen here, and our kids are the ones suffering. And in a weird way, I guess in a global way, 
the market does work because it's other countries who are educating their kids as American kids are failing and failing and failing. You know, and that, that's, that's... I mean, just probably why, why has extremist politics become such a big deal in America, really in the last, what, 10 years, maybe, something like that? Mm, I, w- I would say longer than that, okay. but go ahead. But, but where does it come from? Well, I think it comes from frustration. And so if the, the surveys suggest that almost two-thirds of Americans believe that government needs major structural overhaul. Well, what does that mean? They don't know. What do the parties say about this? Neither party has a vision for structural overhaul. They all argue about policy. Should we deal with immigration this way or climate change that way? Nobody's talking about how government delivers services. The stuff that people react to day to day is making the schools work, making the cops trustworthy and all that kind of thing. So so I think that, that, that what's at stake here is the kind of sense of ownership and belonging that people have with government. The government's become a kind of alien force. And um, it's over there, and it's always kind of getting in our way in a variety of ways that, that, um, that make no sense. And it wastes so much money, so much more money than people realize. We have all these challenges, you know, homelessness and climate change, lots of things we need to spend money on as a, as a society. And instead, we have these incredibly inefficient, wasteful uh, agencies with contracts that mandate feather bedding, that mandate, uh, as you said, sort of unjustifiable pensions, that mandate unaccountability. Ah, you know, if the opportunities for getting rid of the public unions and creating a new system of public service that actually is a merit system. That's what civil that's what government was supposed to have, right? Civil is supposed to be a merit system. Now it's the anti-merit system because there's no merit whatsoever. So going back to some version of a merit system, you know, it's like the foundation for making government serve the public again. It's funny you say that that people feel, find government alien and they don't trust it. And we're more, I guess, partisan than we have been in a long, long time. There was a civil war. We have been more partisan. But it's almost as if we're very skeptical of government and very trusting of government, but on different issues. So people on one side distrust government uh, uh, when it comes to taking our taxes or taking our guns or taking taking away our power. But we, we trust government when it comes to uh, police authority or uh, 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 keeping order. And then there are those who go, no, 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 it's, it's the cops I don't trust. It's the police state I don't trust. But, you know, when it comes to the welfare state and taking it from this group and giving it to that group and control of education and control of environmental issues then that's where I trust government. It's kind of this weird schizophrenia that we have on when when we trust government. I'm thinking, wait a second. These are the same guys. You know, these are the same guys you don't trust, uh, but here you trust them to teach your kids, but over there you don't trust them. It's, it, it really is a bizarre 
love-hate relationship Americans seem to have with, with the system. Yeah, I agree with that. There's a lot of confusion and counter forces. In the case of the police, um, uh, middle class um, communities, especially you know white communities and such, by and large, trust the police and like the police. And, and, and minority communities, by and large, do not. And that's grounded in, well, it's grounded in history and, you know, events like the ones in Memphis uh, this week. But, but, but going to the police for a second, you know, policing, police are given a bad rap. They have a really hard job. And they have a really hard job, particularly in crime-ridden neighborhoods. I mean, as you said at the beginning, this is a, this is a dangerous job. And so the legal system has grown up over the last, since the 1960s, to basically be very distrustful of police. And they have to prove by objective evidence that they had reasons to search somebody. Well, how do you prove an instinct? You know, you, you, it's sort of been while you've been on the beat for a long time, you have a sense of, how do you prove that? So you end up getting things like test line. Test a lying, it's called, where, where they make up reasons why, you know, in order to justify what was, in fact, a, a you know, a, a good instinct that somebody was up to no good. So, so you have these systems in the police that don't give the police a fair shake. But on the other hand, you have these union systems that prevent the police commissioner or police chiefs from from managing the police and making judgments about who has good judgment, you know, who, who's good at the job and who's not, who can be trusted and who's not. So you have a, a conflict even within the police. So you end up with this weird culture, police, where if some, some cop starts misbehaving, other cops don't intervene. There's kind of a culture of, it's almost a culture of not doing the right thing. It's just going along with whatever the cops are doing. And it doesn't work in either direction. And it's it, and the culture needs to get remade, but that starts with giving back authority to the people who are supposed to be in charge, you know, the police chiefs and you know, and those people. I mean, Derek Chauvin, the person who killed George Floyd, was by all accounts a weird guy, tightly wound, shouldn't have been on the beat with with a loaded gun. Well, no, that seems to come back to, to the, the point about merit in that if you're a good cop, if you're a good teacher, if you're a good fireman, you want to be paid by your merit. There is no reason you would want to be paid by a one-size-fits-no-one contract. But if you're a mediocre guy or a less than mediocre guy, the union contract protects you. And so why take any chances in this, in this system where we're all paid the same? Why stand out and put your head above the water? Why take a chance? Why go above and beyond? Why do anything when you're going to get paid exactly the same? Why, why do something different when doing something different will only anger those people who are just going along and getting along. Uh, it's it's so, so opposite of what we were taught was the American spirit of doing your best. And, and so now, now government service 
is the place where those who don't want to work hard will filter to because they know you could never get fired. And at the end of your tenure, you get the best pension you could imagine on, on the backs of everyone else. Right. The only the only I, I agree with most of that. The only point I would uh, push back a little on is that is that uh, the management experts say that the primary motivation, particularly for for jobs that are not like sales jobs, you know, business jobs, right. is, is, is not relative compensation, but it's pride and a sense of mutual obligation, like like soldiers in a war will take care of each other and even risk their lives or give their lives to protect their buddy and such. And so so the main motivation in public service should be probably a sense of mutual obligation and pride in the fact that you are really doing a great job as a teacher or a cop or whatever. And, and instead of a culture of pride, we have a culture of resignation and defensiveness and 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 it, and it and it continually sags as you say where people just they're, they're counting the days until they can retire they have calendars up on the wall say you know only 956 days left before i can get out of this hellhole you know kafka worked at an insurance company in vienna at the turn of the last century franz kafka he talked about the swampy viscosity of time, you know, working in a horrible bureaucratic place, you know, where time knows no end and the days last years because it's so boring. And so what you have in these many government agencies is a culture where you're just moving paper from one side of the table to the next and you're trying to do the minimum, avoid getting in trouble, as you say, or calling yourself. People who try to do their, their best get in trouble with the union rep. They call them aside and say, you're making us look bad because you're working too hard. I mean, is, what, which, I mean, what kind of culture is that? Which is one of the reasons that the administrative state inside government continues to grow. So one of the studies they always have is, you know, we need to have a better student to teacher ratio. Well, the student to teacher ratio in Colorado really hasn't budged even though uh, we hire more and more and more people in education. So the administrative state has exploded. So we're hiring more and more people. They're just not making it into the classroom because we need more administrators to look over the machinery and the administrative state of, of the system. All right, I tell you what, we're getting tight on time, but let me, let me ask you, you brought up the issue of a potential lawsuit saying, this form of government is not a uh, Republican form of government as dictated by the Constitution. Those cases can take a long, long time to work all their way up. It would be a pretty revolutionary change. Um, if, if that takes time, if it doesn't work out, do you see other avenues for change for taking on the malaise of, of government unions? Uh Yes, but it's hard because I go through this in in the book, not accountable, because the unions have so much political power. So th they're collecting about five billion dollars a year in dues, most of which goes for political activity. They swamp every other interest group in terms of they swamp thousands of workers. Ten percent of the Democratic National Convention 
delegates or teacher members of the teachers union. I mean, so so political solutions will be limited jurisdictionally to certain kinds of places. I think the book hopefully provides a new window into the harms caused by unions, not just that they're inefficient, it's that they made it so that democracy doesn't work. But ultimately, uh, again, I think you can have a few jurisdictions where things work better, and maybe watching other other states and cities actually fix things might inspire states like Illinois and California to begin to fix things. But um, ultimately, I actually do have confidence in this legal claim. I, I think the, the the Supreme Court in the Janus opinion, in which it held that unions couldn't force non-union members to pay agency fees, it was under the First Amendment. That opinion doesn't mainly talk about the First Amendment. It talks about how public unions have completely destroyed democratic governance. Well, why is the, the Supreme Court writing that? No one presented them with a theory of that. And so what I'm doing in, the, in this book is presenting that theory. Out in Michigan, about 10 years ago, the state legislature passed a right-to-work law. Now, I understand that had a lot to do with the private sector as well. Uh, there's now a Democratic majority and a Democratic governor, and they're looking to, to, to change that back. I certainly hope that, that they don't. Here in Colorado, teachers do have the right to leave the union. They also have the right to get back part of their political dues. Uh, we at Independence help them out. They can go to um, uh, independent-minded uh, teachers or just go to our education page on thinkfreedom.org and get back some of that and how to leave the union. It's really difficult. It's very intimidating for a teacher to leave the union even if they have, uh, even if they want to. Matter of fact, we, we've had a lot of stories of teachers who want to leave and get bullied into staying in the union. Right, in New Jersey, they passed a law in anticipation of Janus that says if the school administration in, in any way encourages a teacher to leave the union, the the school will be liable in damages to the union. I mean, I mean, it's just incredible the kinds of stuff they can get the legislatures to pass because they're so politically powerful. I saw uh, a couple of union contracts that said a teacher could come to work drunk like five times before uh, they could get fired or high or on drugs before they were severely disciplined. But if they missed their dues to the union, they could be fired immediately. That told you, that told you the power of the union. All right, not accountable. Philip Howard, uh, this, is, this, is a, this is a terrific book to make sure people understand not only just how powerful unions are, but why, why we ought to be looking at them, why we shouldn't be scared about even talking about them. Um, I, I, I hope you look under your car every time you drive away from home. Just, just something to think about. Uh, I'm assuming available at Amazon and greater bookstores everywhere. And you also told me it's available on tape for, for illiterates like me, and I appreciate that. Excellent. Uh, hey, thanks for making time for me. I really enjoyed this. Anytime. Nice being with you, John. Good questions. Thank you so much. Take care. This is John Caldera, and if you've enjoyed this episode of Devil's Advocate, I hope you'll share it with a friend. 
You can listen to more episodes on all streaming services, with new ones being released weekly. And remember, this is the audio from our television show. To watch the video version, just search the letters IITV for Independence Institute TV on YouTube for this and many other great conversations. Thank you.